All right, let's see here. Okay, well, welcome everybody. Marosh, welcome. Hari Priya. Here. And Hare Krishna. Okay. Just a, a warning, my internet is a little unstable, so it should be okay, but let's see how it goes. Okay. Om Gyanati Mirandasya Gyanandana Salakaya Chaksurun Militam Yena Tasmai Sigurave Namaha Sitetanya Manobistam Stabitam Yena Bhutale Saim Rupa Karamahim Parandikam Vandeham Siguro Siuta Parakamalam Sigurun Vaisnavam Si Rupam Sakrajatam Sahagana Ragunatan Vitam Tamsajivam Sadvetam Savadutam Parijana Sahitam Krishna Chetana Devam Si Radha Krishna Paran Sahagana Lalita Si Visakam Vitamstra Namo Bhakti Vinodaya Sachirananda Namine Gaurasakti Sarupaya Rupanugavrayate Vandeham Si Ramakrishna Bhaya Charanasako Sukkaro Paramanando Sundaro Subalapriyo Namachintamani Krishnas Chaitanya Rasavigraha Purna Sudha Nityamukta Vinatvan Namanamino Si Gaurya Vaishnava Guru Parampara Kijai Si Paramgurun Kijai Si Guru Dev Kijai all right, well, welcome everybody. Matthew came after the pronouns. Welcome. Um, I have the great honor of uh, kicking off this March uh, batch of, of talks uh, that are gonna be uh, happening around or like um, are gonna be concentrated or focused on the, the holy name and Mahaprabhu and Navadvip and so on. So. I am the first, first in line here, and it is a great honor. And uh, I'm going to be talking on Nam, uh, Harinam Chintamani, which is, of course, a book of Bhaktivinoda about chanting the pure name. And I feel completely, <laughs> definitely, completely uh, unqualified to talk about such a high topic as the Shudhanam, obviously. At this stage, I'm nowhere near that myself, but you know the theoretic, theoretical knowledge is there, and by the mercy of my my Guru Maharaj and and the Purvacharyas, I hope that I'll be able to 
say something relevant. If not, at least I can purify myself by engaging in this kind of exercise. But Harinam um, uh, I would like to um, say a couple words about the the world situation and how that relates to us as sadhakas, basically. Um, I've been watching, like probably everybody in the world, I've been, you know, watching some of the footage and and seeing the the horror of war in Ukraine, and it, my heart goes out to all the Ukrainian civilians and the soldiers. But I thought about it more, and really, it's uh, my heart also goes out to the Russian soldiers and even Putin himself, because really. It's just an intense example of how we get covered by material uh, conditioning as spirit souls in the, in the world. I mean, uh, like you think about what Putin is doing to himself, not only to like thousands of people, only because of the greed and whatever, you know, anarthas are in his heart that makes him behave in such a crazy way he's really paving himself in the future. And you know, they're just obeying orders and they, they do these horrible atrocities for no good reason, really, when you think about it. And so that's where I really came to is that, that really everybody's sort of a victim in this situation because we're, we're just like driven by our ignorance and the, the material covering. And as angry as it makes me when I see this, these footage of like children shot to death or something like that. And as much as I, you know, like to punch Putin in the face in, on one level, then when I try to look at the situation through the Shastra, then it makes me really understand that like, that it's just really a terrible situation for anybody involved. And I was further trying to really think about how, you know, like spirituality is supposed to be relevant to our lives at every step, at every moment. It's not just you don't separate spirituality from how you experience the world, right? And so, so then how do you make spirituality relevant in a situation like what we're going through right now? There's a this looming, you know, nuclear war, world war, very intense situation. And here we are studying these, you know, apparently obscure texts that have somebody could claim nothing to do with the world right now and what the situation is. Of course, we, you know, strongly disagree with that. And that, that was one med my meditation when I was prepping for this class is like, what is the significance, I guess, especially of Harinam Chintamani to, to us right now in this moment. Or might not, but anyway, what is the significance? And when I thought about it, I really came to the conclusion that the core point one of the core points of Harinam Chintamani is that, that there's no real shelter in anywhere else than in, in Harinam or in the name of Krishna in the world, because any other type of shelter or power or Shakti or whatever you try to shelter yourself with 
from uh, bad things or suffering or pain, it it's only a partial shelter and it doesn't it doesn't give you the ultimate shelter. And really, the Harinam Chintamani is all about trying to forge our faith in that direction that actually the name is the only thing that is like the conclusive all-encompassing shelter for us and then we'll go into how that is exactly like of course we can't just make a statement like that and assume that people buy it without you know truly understanding how it actually is true and so that's really that's really i think how the scripture and Harinam Chintamani and what we're doing in these little gatherings is extremely, extremely relevant to what's going on in the world right now at all times. Also, it's not just now, but people tend to say that religion is this look like crotch that you pull out of the closet when things get tough. And unfortunately, uh, materially motivated religion tends to be like that. But that's that, like real spirituality. You, I guess you could say that you try to use any situation to to evoke those uh, feelings of of dependence on Krishna and Krishna Nam. So, so if you're doing well, then you feel gratitude that things are going well. If things get tough, like they're getting tough right now, then you take it as a as a, a, a reminder at, that there is no peace in the world. Like, and I guess that's another point. I I think I'm gonna close with this. <laughs> excuse me. This. You know, you know, intro, whatever it is, with this thought that we, in the West, since the Second World War, it's been like unusually peaceful. And, and like it's a complete anomaly in terms of world history. But we, because we're born into it, and that's how I think all of us here, we, yeah, all of us, none of us lived through a war. And so we have this idea that, um, that life is always progressive, that, that like humanity is progressive in this linear way, that things are constantly getting better and better. And uh, it came to me when I thought about it yesterday that I think the basis of that paradigm and really a myth is that, that science and rationality move in that way. And so we, in the West, we've really come to base our life on, lives on science and rationality. And so we've imposed the same structure, it seems to me, to life overall, that actually, if we live a scientific and rationally centered life, it's gonna be linearly progressive. And that, of course, is one of those examples where a paradigm kind of subsumes the whole of life. And, simplifies it to the point where reality it, reality doesn't uh, conform with that paradigm anymore when things like, like this happen. And so I think as devotees, it's very useful for us to try to understand how we also, since we live in this society in the West, how we are permeated by that kind of thinking that things are constantly getting better and better. Because I'm, I'm not a historian, but as far as I know, the little I've looked into it, I don't think there is any other culture that has that kind of idea. And especially in the Hindu culture, there's this idea that things just like nature constantly uh, progress and then they start degenerating and then they collapse and then they get reborn and instead of this linear idea. And so it's for Westerners, 
since we have this paradigm, this myth of constant progress, and that that's what life is supposed to be, that things always get better and better and better, it's really crushing for us when stuff like this happens, what's happening right now. It seems like we're being thrown back like 200 years to the 19th century, you know, jostling of empires or something. But, but I, my feeling is that things just move in cycles and it's very unfortunate what's happening, but that we have to really question that idea that things are getting better, like progressively like that. And I think I'm going to, oh, one thing I did want to say is, although I was emphasizing that the only shelter is a holy name and, and really material world, the material world is sort of like designed to be a place of suffering. Said over and over again, the scriptures and the Bhagavatam and stuff. Uh, nonetheless, you know, we as devotees, devotees are compassion, compassionate by, by heart, by nature. And so it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to help the Ukrainian devotees, for example, the UK Ukrainian people in general. And one of our god sisters, no, my god sister, Namrasana, is actually collecting money because there's all these refugees coming from, uh, at this point, it's devotee refugees coming from Ukraine to Poland, and they're like getting them situated, buying them food and supplies and stuff like that. So I just wanted to put it out there that if you want to help, like, actually, um, directly and practically these people who are suffering so much these devotees you can donate money to namarasana who's going to spend every cent of it on these devotees to help them and if you're interested you can find her uh paypal address on my facebook page i posted this thing that she wrote so check it out if you're interested to help and with that let's move on to the meat of the subject which is harinam chintaman so uh Bhaktivinoda Thakur, he wrote Harinam Chintamani in 1900. So that was four years after Jaiva Dharma, which is considered to be his magnum opus. And uh, it's nice for me to go through Bhaktivinoda's writings because I start getting the sense of like what happened when and how his thinking is maybe evolving or taking some, some different directions. And um, as you might know, Bhaktivinoda, in the end of his life, he went full bhajan, like he's locked himself self up in a room and did nothing but like chanting and his personal bhajan. And uh, so he passed away in 1914. So Harinam Chintamani was written 14 years uh, before he passed away. And I can't remember exactly at what time Bhaktivinoda isolated himself and started doing that Nirjan Bhajan or like solitary Bhajan or spiritual practice. But uh, so, but you can see from Jaiva Dharma to Harinam Chintamani, it's getting more internal. He's focusing only on chanting, whereas in Jaiva Dharma, the section I'm going through right now with you guys, he's really talking a lot about how does Bhakti relate to the normal world and Varnashram and caste and history and all these things. But here, he's starting to go just like hardcore just what is krishna nam how do you how do you learn to chant shuddha nam let's get into the very core of what our practice is about and um you could say that harinam chintamani is kind of like a user manual for for chanting and i thought like it'd be a good idea whenever you know the guru hands the beads he hands the, the manual with it, just like you buy a chainsaw or something. You always get the manual with it because people are going to cut their hands off otherwise or something. 
So really Harinam Chintamani is this like manual of how do you progressively and step by gradually, step by step, go towards pure name, which is Krishna himself. So basically how do you completely uh, unite with Krishna through the name? And if we continue this uh, chainsaw manual metaphor or simile, I guess simile, um, and look at the manual, you know, how is it uh, constructed or, or organized? Um, there's the introduction. And then that you could kind of like call, you know, like in the manual, there's this like blow up picture of if you buy that chainsaw, it's this blow up picture that shows all the different parts blown out from each other. So you get this whole sense of what the thing is about. So that's what Bhaktivinoda is doing in the introduction. He's kind of talking about the theoretical framework, Sambandha Gyan, to understand what we're involved in here and, and what is the framework for Harinam? What is it all about, really? The second chapter is accepting the name. And that's all about like eligibility or like how the name comes to, to people and how they take it up. And in our chainsaw manual, you could say that that's the you know warnings about who should be using a chainsaw like it's not for kids for example don't do it when you're drunk <laughs> you know what does the name come to a person and the third chapter um, a completely new devotee or not even a devotee but when you get the agyata sukriti or the the kind of like pious pious impressions in your heart that you're not even aware of from a devotee how from there you go through the different stages of chanting and end up in the and it's all about chanting in the in the right way so that you avoid certain things and try to purify your consciousness so that again in the chainsaw manual could be something like, you know, the precautions, like you should, you know, wear the goggles and, and do, do it right so that you don't end up hurting yourself. And then the kind of like the meat of the book is the 10 offenses. He, he dedicates each, one chapter for each 10 offense. And, and it's really like kind of interesting, like try to avoid these things because they're gonna bog down and that, of course, in a manual, is a blade or something. Sorry for the kind of like macho simile here, but <laughs> the thing is like when you live in a place like Gaudaria, you're constantly involved in like maintaining machinery and fixing chainsaws and stuff like that. So I was just weeding, weed whacking yesterday. So this machinery stuff's kind of in my mind. But anyway, uh, it definitely does relate directly in some ways. How if you have a thing that you don't know how to use, the manual, you know, you, you pretty much need a manual. And even better, if you have a person who's very experienced at running a chainsaw, like Chidahari has been for me since I came to Audaria, uh, that's when you combine those two, that's, that's prices. And of course, that's the passive and the active agent of the, the Bhagavad principle. 
And then uh, the 14th chapter is about seva aparad. So that's like the auxiliary or kind of like the supportive actions for Harinam, which is deity worship and what not to do there. And that, you know, I'm getting a little over the top with the simile, but you could think of it as the how to service your chainsaw. So it's not directly about using the chainsaw, but it's the service. And there's all in the manuals always have all this stuff about how to service and maintain your equipment. And then the final uh, chapter is called Bhajan Pranali, which uh, you guys might be familiar with the word Pranali, Siddha Pranali, it means lineage. So in this context, it means that uh, Bhaktivinoda is basically showing when you're very advanced, when you're chanting Sudhanam, uh, how you can enter Lila Smaranam through chanting alone. And that's why it's not Siddha Pranali, but it's, it's Pajan Pranali. You get that highest realization from chanting and not through this like uh, Siddha Pranali line that gives you the, the 10, the Ekdas Bhav, it's called like the 10 um, different features of your Siddha Deha or spiritual body. So in the chainsaw manual thing, this would be the final stage of how to actually run your saw after all the precautions, the, the do nots and stuff. Now it's just to finally running the saw and how do you run the saw with the, most, the best possible efficiency. And um, so that's the breakdown. And I'm going to do maybe three or four chapters a day. I mean... Over, but a lot of the chapters are short. I don't think it's going to be too overwhelming or anything. And uh, so today we'll focus on the two first chapters. And um, so the book consists of a discussion between uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Srila Haridas Thakur and uh, in Jagannath Puri. And it, excuse me, starts with this nice description of, of how there's this Daru Brahma or like Brahman made out of wood, which is of course Jagannath and Swami, the deity. And uh, Bhaktivinoda kind of takes this bird eye view coming down. Okay, there's the, this place Jagannath Puri by the sea. And then the, the Lord of that place is the Daru Brahma. And then, and then now a sannyasi, uh, God has come to uh, Jagannath Puri again in the form of a sannyasi, uh, the name, named Sri Chaitanya. And, um, he goes on to say that, that this Chaitanya taught these, uh, presented precise spiritual instructions for the benefit of humanity in Jagannath Puri. And Bhaktivinoda points out in the beginning, or the concept of rasa and through the mouth of Sarabhauma, he gave the, the principle of real liberation instead of the Nirvishya's Brahman idea. And through the mouth of Rupa Goswami, he presented the, the intricate analysis of rasa or the rasa tattva or the, like with, I guess the difference is there that Ramana Narai, it was like the feeling of rasa. And then Rupa Goswami, it was the, the tattva of rasa and, and of what bhakti, what shuddha bhakti is in the heart of it. And then through the mouth of Haridas Thakur, of course, uh, Mahaprabhu taught about the, the pure name and, and the full glory of the holy name and, and chanting the holy name. 
So the narration starts with this uh, description of Mahabrabhu showing up at the uh, Bhajan Haridas Thakur's Kutir behind, um, was it, no, who was it? Mishra. Oh, now I'm forgetting. Uh, one of the associates, oh, Kashi Mishra. He had a house in, in Jagannath Puri, and Mahaprabhu asked, backyard, uh, basically, there was a kutir there. And there was this uh, tree called Siddha Bakula, which became famous later on. I wanted to share you share a nice image of that situation or the moment when they when Haridas starts, uh, you know, there's Haridas is under, and Mahaprabhu are under the Siddha Bakula tree. And so what happened was Mahaprabhu came and just after bathing the sea in the morning, he showed up at Haridas's um, kutir. And he uh, asked about how uh, could the living entities become liberated from the material world uh, in the most easy way? And Haridas Thakur, he started shivering in ecstasy and, and you know, tears came from to his eyes and, and he clasped, uh, clasped Mahaprabhu's feet and said that, that he started glorifying Mahaprabhu. You're the, you know, the Purna Brahman, you, you're like, just like all this beautiful glorification. And, and then he started deprecating himself. Like, I'm absolutely nobody. I'm nothing. Like, I have no qualification whatsoever. And he was just showing this intense humility about the fact that Mahaprabhu would ask him to explain these things. And that, of course, it's not mentioned in the book, but, but it's clear that that is the qualification for for pure chanting or for describing these things. I don't know why I am describing these things because I do not have this qualification for sure. You can ask my wife about my pride, but it's the, the third verse of Sikshastakam, like the, the most extreme humility is the qualification to, to chant the pure name. And Haridas, like he just gives a perfect unintended example of how qualified he is by this intense deprecation that is not like my much likes to say it's not any like uh psychological you know uh, weakness or something it's it's just realizing your actual insignificance or your actual size compared to you know the reality really I mean, krishna and mahaprabhu they are like reality personified and we're these tiny little sparks so you can imagine if you actually like realize that in the presence of reality personified, how you would feel. And then on top of that, that reality is so affectionate and loving towards you. So, I mean, I can theoretically understand how extremely humbling that would be. So then Haridas Thakur, he starts giving the bird's eye view of our material conditioning and our situation of like let's actually look at what this is like not let's not just focus on what we perceive through our senses and mind but let's look at through the shastra how hopeless our situation is and so he starts starts it by describing krishna and how he's the perfect whole and a completely independent being and and the to totality of existence 
And then he goes on to explain his shaktis that that although he's completely independent, he's inconceivably always connected to his shaktis. And then he goes on to dis, uh, describe the different types of shaktis, uh, you know, the the antaranga shakti or the internal potency, the tatastha shakti, which is the jivas, and then the the antar uh, the bahiranga or the the material world. And so he's trying to make us understand how small we are and how stuck in our illusion we are again again thinking back to putin you know and and the whole war and everything how stuck we are in this provisional illusory idea of what is actually going on and what reality is and so when he talks about when bhaktivinoda or haridas thakur talks about the jiva shakti he talks about the two different types of jivas you know the nitya siddhas who are already liberated and then us poor I don't want to use an expl expletive, but, you know, poor bastards out here in the world. And uh, so then to really try to make us understand the situation that we're in, he describes how we try to be happy through karma or we try to be happy through gyan. And it's never fully satisfying for the soul. And, um, and how we like go in this cycle of birth and death for an eternity. I mean, it's, we can't actually conceive what eternity, eternity means. Sort of enjoying forever. There, there's never a time when we were not in this cycle and, that's, and we're stuck in it. But then he makes a really nice point. point. He says that, but since jivas are a manifestation of Bhagavan, which is the, the technical word is vibhinamsa, this like minute part, we are a sort of one manifestation of Bhagavan because we're like extensions of Paramatma basically in the material world. The, the Bhagavan, Bhagavan remains with the jivas. That's how Bhaktivinoda worded, worded it, that he remains with the jivas and, and he provides us what we desire. And if we use Harinam to, to, you know, it's Chintamani is the idea. So it's this like touchstone that gives you anything you want. But we want the wrong things. And so if we chant in the context of, of karma, we get karmic results. Or if we chant in the context of Gyan, we get uh, knowledge. Um, So basically the karmis, they try to enjoy the world and the jnanis, they try to, they, some people come to the realization like, wow, this world is full of suffering. I want to get out of this sphere. And that's when they start practicing jnan. It's, it's uh, motivated by, by this uh, desire to stop suffering. And um, then there's of course the devotees and, and they, you know, at least we're supposed to do bhakti. Well, yeah, yeah. if you do it for the pure per reasons, that's that's make that's what makes you vote. Please, Krishna, and to 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 serve him and to give him pleasure, really. And uh, there are uh, bhakti. You know, goes on to explain how there are like different sukriti for different things so there's karma sukriti gyan sukriti and bhakti sukriti and the other types of sukriti you get 
from association or like from your nature it, you, you have a certain karmic nature or or you've started to cultivate gyan and so you get it kind of how would I explain it 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 comes from the uh, material environment that sukriti but bhakti sukriti comes from outside it, it comes from outside of this whole sphere and um and it starts with the agyata bhakti sukriti which which means that you get contact with devotees and devotional behavior without realizing what you're doing it's just it rubs on you without you having any say in it and that's the only way to develop start developing bhakti sukriti you, you you're not even aware of it it's completely just grace and mercy and and so that fructifies into a conscious effort to seek outside of sangha once you get enough of that un, uh, what's the word agyata sukriti then it pops through the surface at some point, and then you all of a sudden have this desire to seek outside of sangha. You, you, your heart just like, I need something. You don't know exactly what it is. And then when you meet the devotee, then you realize this is what I've been looking for. And, um, and that's when you really start cultivating the bhakti sukriti in this major way, like consciously you, you go for it and you start gradually focusing your whole energy is your whole life towards becoming a devotee and um, um there there's a nice point also i want to make to gradually bring them to the platform of bhakti so for example the karmis there's this whole for example the system of varnashram dharma if it's centered around Vishnu, the whole purpose of that is to gradually purify oneself to start having those bhakti samskars for worshipping the Godhead. And then the Gyanis, um, um, that was a little unclear to me. I got to look into that better, but they also indirectly, um, Krishna kind of uses the Gyanis' desires to, to start having them come towards him. And, and uh, so basically what, what he's saying there is that the only reason that we have come through karma and jnana to, to Krishna, to bhakti, is because Krishna's desire is in the background. He wants us to come to him. And Bhaktivinoda says that the su success of this process of gradually going towards Krishna from these different desires depends completely on the mercy of Bhagavan. And it, it, without that, you cannot have a progressive towards bhakti. And then he goes on to explain, Haridas Thakur goes on to explain how, how these different yugas had different methods of purification. And so Bhaktivinoda uses the same idea that he used in the previous section to say how actually he is indirectly trying to purify the souls to come to him. He says that in Satya Yuga, Krishna first purified the sages by the method of meditation. And then when they were purified, he gave them uh, Sudha Bhakti. And then in Treta Yuga, the purification happened through performance of sacrifice. And then again, once they were pure, then he bestowed Bhakti on them. And then Dvapari But then in Kali Yuga, the whole thing is such a mess <laughs> that 
that I think maybe Krishna got a little like impatient. He was like, yeah, you guys can't purify yourself with, with any method because you're, you're so degraded and, and so bewildered by the material influence. So here's Hari Nam for you. This, you don't have to, there's no prelim, preliminary purificatory uh, uh, requirements you just you pick up Harinam from wherever you're at and you ch start chanting and it's the best way of making spiritual progress and actually coming to to Krishna in the end and of course we're extremely fortunate to to be devotees at this time because of that you know it's a two-pronged thing on the other hand our minds are so tweaked out and, and disturbed that it's hard to even chant it's even that is hard but if we can get through that, then it's like so much easier than it has been in the previous yugas. And, and there's no, uh, there's really no other qualification than, than having e even some faith in the beginning for the chanting and just doing it and it starts purifying. Um, and so basically Bhagavan himself has actually descended in, in Kali Yuga in the form of his name. And yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a pretty cool idea that, that, you know, we're always like, oh, I wish I would have been alive when Mahaprabhu was here. I wish I would have been here when Krishna was on earth. But we probably would have not even recognized them in some ways because we're so covered because the name is directly Krishna and we're not recognizing Krishna, the name for being directly Krishna. So what makes us think that we would have recognized God if we were on the planet at the same time? Um, so and the beautiful thing, of course, about Harinam is that the means is Harinam, but that the means never disappears. The goal is Krishna Prem, but once the goal is reached, the, the means are never given up because Harinam is in, in, intrinsic to the activities of Prem. And that, that's a really interesting point that whatever that Harinam is in its true pure state, it is intrinsic to Prem. There's no separation between the name and Prem, of course, because that is Krishna directly. The name is Krishna. It's completely spiritual. And um, after this kind of like overview, uh, Haridas Thakur, again, he falls at the feet of Mahaprabhu and just cries incessantly and starts deprecating himself again and uh, the second chapter starts with the description of, of of then Mahaprabhu you know his heart is melting from the intense humility of, of Haridas Thakur and so the, he in turn starts glorifying Haridas Thakur saying how could there be a better devotee than you and it's a beautiful exchange of how that that relationship with Bhagavan works when it's completely pure and, and without any kind of motive. It's this completely unobstructed, spontaneous uh, back and forth between God and the, and the servant. So chapter two is called Accepting the Holy Name. And as I mentioned, Mahaprabhu starts by glorifying Haridas and uh, saying how he showed the whole world how Shuddha Bhakti is not obtained by any qualification of like birth or there, there's no external qualification because that's in the world of karma or there's no external qualification in terms of knowledge or anything like that because that's in the in the realm of gyan so and and then Mahaprabhu says a beautiful thing he says that 
the proof that you believe that you have full faith in the name that you think it's the highest thing is the is the way you behave. Of course, uh, uh, Haridas Thakur chanted uh, 300,000 names a day. And how could you have faith in anything else if all you do is sit and chant? And that is a very, uh, very useful kind of like a barometer of what would you call it? Like a, um, yeah, some kind of a meter that you can use to gauge where you are at devotionally is like, how much of your behavior, both mental and physical behavior, centers around Krishna. Because, of course, like faith and activity or faith and your mental state are completely, really united. And so then if you start uh, kind of like, um, what's the word? Um, observing your heart and observing your mental movements, then it's very easy to see how our faith is still very much mixed it's the uh, if our our bhakti is not steady it means that we have our faith is a little adulterous <laughs> you could say it's going in different directions it has faith we have faith in many things that, that's our state as sadhakas lower level sadhakas is that um our faith is not pure and and whereas haridas he had absolutely no interest in anything else. And the same thing is seen in the, in the life of the, the great Acharyas also. And uh, like you even think about somebody like um, Akinchar and Krishnadas Babaji Maharaj, who uh, lived, he was a god brother of, of Sri Prabhupada. And and he had nothing else than Harinam. He, he only slept like an hour or two a, a night and just chanted and did kirtan all day. And so that, that was his faith. That's all he had faith in. And that's all, that's, that's all he did because he didn't have faith in anything else. Um, so then Mahaprabhu asks Haridas Thakur to describe how living entities take up chanting. What is that process that, that the name comes to them? And how do they take it up? And so Haridas Thakur, I have to skip ahead a little, little bit because uh, I'm a little behind. But anyway, Haridas Thakur starts describing the nature of the holy name, how it's uh, Chintamani and everything included in it. And it, it does, uh, uh, it gives you all your desires, whatever you desire when you're chanting, that will come to be. And he really emphasized the point that the name is identical to Krishna. And that the name is a conscious personality. Uh, uh, the term is Chaitanya Vigraha. It, that uh, glorification I sang in the beginning, the Nam Chintamani Krishna's verse, there's a part that says Chaitanya, Chaitanya Rasa Vigraha. So it's the form of consciousness and bliss, the, the name itself. And it's an actual conscious personality, in, uh, none different from Krishna. And it's eternally liberated, of course, and completely beyond the gunas. And it descends into the material world in its pure form, in the pure spiritual form. Um, and uh, since it is non-different from Krishna, that is the means for the sadhaka to taste the, the sweetness of Krishna in this world. It's like this 
this like stream of nectar <laughs> coming down from the sky. And of course, you know, we have like cellophane on our mouths and it just like drips off of our mouth. And we're like, you know, it's not working. It's, it's not, not a real thing. All you have to do is, <laughs> but of course we, we have our own faith around what it is that's blocking us from tasting that drip of nectar coming down from the sky. Um, then he goes on to explain how, how the name includes everything in it in terms of there's the form of Krishna in the name, there's the qualities of Krishna in the name and the pastimes of Krishna in the name. So the point is that if you... <sighs> The name is like the, the skeleton key. I learned this term from this great uh, speaker and preacher, uh, Tamal Krishna Das. And so, so the name is the skeleton key. In these old um, mansions, they had like hundreds of rooms and each, each room had its own key. But then there's the skeleton key, you know, the janitor had the skeleton key that would work for each door. So the name is the skeleton key to the, the guna of Krishna, the qualities of Krishna. It's the key to the form of Krishna. It's the key to the, to the final thing that we're after, which is the lilas or the pastimes of Krishna. And so everything's included in this name and it's actually coming to us. And, and if we just put our full focus on the name, that is the skeleton key for this mansion of, of Krishna lila. Um, and so in the material world, there's a clear difference between one's um, name and all the, all the rest of it, our form and activities and qualities. But the reason for that is that we're in a completely uh, foreign environment right now. Like we, we do not belong in this world. We are Chinmoy, we're like Satchitananda by nature. And we're in the Asat, Achit and, and Nirananda reality, which is completely opposed to our actual nature it's innate whereas we're pure consciousness we're constituted of consciousness and so that's there's there's this uh, stark difference between our name and all the rest of us whatever we are and then so we impose this idea on the spiritual realm and we think that it has to be like that in the spiritual world as well and that's why it's you, the impersonal idea is attractive to a conditioned soul because it seems to be the perfect opposite of, of what the, the gaping gap between us and the spiritual world is in this reality. Or, or we, have, we always have the sense of being uh, alienated from our environments or like that we're like alone or isolated. And then we're, we just want this like complete peace and, and oneness with our, our environment, right? But the beautiful thing about Krishna consciousness is that, that that can be had without the cost of your actual personality or like having the, without having the, we don't have to like annihilate our separate sense of self, but it's not separate in the way that we feel separate and alienated, obviously in this material world. It's this complete unity. Like, like Bhaktisiddhanta Sarasthi used to always make the point that the lila happens on the platform of Achinta uh, Advaigyan, which is the, the non-dual consciousness. So we should be careful not to think of the Krishna Leela as this dualistic thing, like our material existence is, but at the same, it's really like best of both worlds. It's Advaigyan, but we still are personalities in relation to the real person or the, the 
totality of existence. And um, And then uh, Haridas Thakur makes the point about there being like the primary names of God and secondary names of God. And so the, the primary names are like Govind, names that relate to Krishna's life and not our life. And that's the definition of Shuddha Bhakti. We're interested in Krishna's life and not selfish interests of what we can get in this world, you know, up in this world. And, and so and the secondary names are more related to our embodiment and our desire to relinquish our embodiment. So like Brahman or like Jagannath or those kind of names that refer to our relationship to the world in our conditioned state. And he just makes, I mean, for us as you know, devotees, we know this already, but it's good to remember that if we want to have that Shuddha Bhakti connection with God, we have to focus on the preliminary names because the, all the different names have all the shaktis and the, the qualities and the pastimes of the Lord in them. So the name you focus on is going to give you all the rest of it. Excuse me. And then uh, Harinam, Harinam, Haridas Thakur goes on to explain the different stages of chanting. And he starts it by saying that the scriptures do say that whoever even chants Harinam once, be purely un or unpurely, they will be liberated. But Bhaktivinod uh, qualifies it by saying that if you chant unpurely, impurely, it's going to take some time, some time. <laughs> um, but then he goes further on and, and describes different stages. So, of course, there are the stages of Aparad, which means your chanting is, is completely offensive. And as a side point, uh, Haridas Thakur mentions that the offense of thinking of Krishna's name and his qualities and his, his personality to be set, two separate things, like the name is one thing and Krishna is another thing, that's one of the, the biggest apparatus that you can have when you're chanting. Because the Mayavadi conception comes from this kind of thinking that that the name is just a means to this like impersonal, uh, qualityless Brahman. But we strongly believe as devotees that the name actually has all the shaktis in, in the name. And it's completely, unlimitedly varied, variegated instead of uh, nirvishesh. And then there's the stage of namabhas. And there's kind of two types of namabhas. I'm going to go into this. There's some that... Um, Definitions are not totally clear, or they basically, historically, they've used namabas to uh, explain different types of chanting, and it's not always clear which is which. So I'm going to go and try to completely clarify it uh, in a future class. But for now, we can just uh, define namabas as either chanting with the right conception, but the heart is not pure, which is you could say what we as initiated devotees hopefully are on that level or without offenses, but with, with no understanding of the name. There's a whole explanation in the Bhagavatam of how you can chant without like offenselessly, but even making fun of the, the chanting. And we'll go to, to that later on as well. And then of course, the, the highest uh, reach is the Shudhanam or the pure name, completely pure chanting. 
where you're basically in the in the company of Krishna. And um, so, so but then Haridas Thakur summarizes that the the kind of like the sutra of these teachings is that you have to first of all understand the identity between Krishna and his name. And secondly, you have to chant the principal name of Krishna, not the secondary names. And then third, uh, you have to chant the name devoid of Namabas or Namaparad. And at this point, we might be like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. But how the heck do you overcome the stage of Namabas? I mean, it seems almost insurmountable. And to that, Haridas Thakur responds in a very nice way that I'm going to read a direct quote of. So in order to overcome Namabas and obtain the pure name, the living entity must serve the genuine guru with great attention. By doing this, the anarthas or impurities in the heart will disappear and the pure name endowed with all spiritual potency will dance on the devotee's tongue. At that time, the devotee will not be able to separate himself from the stream of sweet nectar emanating from the holy name. And he will dance constantly mad with the sweetness of the name. In great joy, the name will dance, the jiva will dance, and prema itself will dance with the jiva. This will make the whole world, the whole universe dance, and will force Maya to flee. <laughs> I love this description, especially this part that, uh, let's see, at that time, the devotee will not be able to separate himself from the stream of sweet nectar emanating from the holy name. So basically, at that point, we are completely overcome by Prem, and then the whole world is going to explode in this dance party. It says, the way to overcome this is to serve a genuine guru with great attention. And so there are people who think that let's just focus on the, on the chanting, because that is the Nama Dharma. Like, forget about all this like guru worship and stuff. And of course, there have been like exaggerations in the guru worship in the past 30 years for sure. So it's not totally, you know, uncalled for. But the, the principle of, of serving, it doesn't have to be a guru, actually. What, what he's talking about is a Shuddha Vaishnav that instructs you, somebody who's pure already. In terms of the chainsaw manual, it's the dude who knows how to run the chainsaw, Chitahari in, in my case. That's what you need to not hack your limbs off. And um, that's such an important point. And we, we should not like minimize that point. It's absolutely essential for us if we want to chant the holy name to be in the association of pure devotees. Then the question comes, well, how do you qualify yourself for such a high practice? Like, like purification gradually. And so if this is the highest thing, then there must be some kind of pre preliminary requirement so that you can do the highest, highest service or the highest thing. And beautiful song, Poroshuker Nityananda selling the holy name just recently. Um, Mohini gave really nice classes on this point. Oh, he, this, she, this was one of the songs that she explained. And so faith is the only thing, but okay, that you could definitely ask, like, okay, sounds so easy, it's only your faith. But the thing is, 
real faith, real like faith in Shuddha Bhakti is the most rare thing you could say in the world. Because the scriptures mention that out of thousands of perfect yanis, there might be, or millions, there might be one that has pure faith in, in Krishna. And out of those people, there's one, uh, millions of those people, there's one, I don't want to <laughs> rain on your parade here or my own parade either, but this is what the scripture is saying. Like out of even those millions of people who have faith, real faith in Krishna, only one will attain Baba. And from there, only one of them will attain Prem. So, so it says, you know, you know, it's only, only faith is required. So this is simple. And it's actually true that if you have a little bit of faith, if you can get going. And from there on, you're guaranteed to end up in Golok because this cannot be stopped. Like the, the flow of Krishna consciousness, nothing can stop it. The war in Ukraine, nothing can stop it. And so, you know, that you can look at it from two points of view. In one hand, it's like, it's actually super easy. You have a little bit of faith. Okay, there, there's something to this chanting. You start chanting. But to take it all the way to the end, you have to try and transform your whole heart a complete transformation of your value system and what you actually have faith in in the world. Okay, and then to wrap the class up, I'm going to read one more quote because it's very nice also. It goes like this. Therefore, the living entity living, Kali Yuga, living in Kali Yuga should constantly and sincerely chant the holy name in the association of Vaishnavas. Though living in the material world, he should spend his life in constant remembrance and chanting of the holy name in the association of devotees while engaging in all actions favorable to spiritual development and avoiding all actions which are detrimental to spiritual progress. So it seems like so easy. All you have to do is you're always in the association of devotees, constantly thinking of the holy name and remembering the holy name and doing the things that are favorable and avoiding the unfavorable things. But as all, we all know, it's done for sure. But I guess to end on a positive note, after all this all this <laughs> um, doomsaying or whatever you would call it, um, the thing is, like I mentioned, that there is no stopping this. We are in the flow already. And it's just, a, it might seem like a long time to us, but in the bigger picture, it's just, I think it's, is it Rupa Jiva Goswami who gives the example of there being a pack of like uh, rose petals and you push a needle through. And it seems like you go through the whole thing in one shot like that. But those, you could say they are, those rose petals are, are, are anarthas. And it's one after another, the needle has to pierce one petal at a time, but it's really, it's just like, bam, through the bhakti like that. I hope that helps. That's all I'm going to say today. And uh, let's see if you guys have comments or questions. Hey, thank you so much for your class. It was really inspiring. I, I have one. <laughs> I have one comment and uh, one question as well i i really liked how you described this uh, discussion discussion and in, interaction between haridas takur and mahaprabhu like uh, how the humility of uh, haridas made the heart of uh, Chaitanya mahaprabhu to melt and then they were glorifying each other and uh, how how it was really like going in both ways 
And uh, I just uh, kind of thought that uh, often, at, at least in my case, uh, when I'm chanting or praying, uh, it seems that I'm often focusing more on what I am saying, but I'm not really like stopping to listen if uh, something is coming actually back. So <laughs> that's a nice reminder about, mm. about that. And that no, like like that we are not alone in the practice and that but th then i have a question as well and it's about uh, uh, stages of chanting and so i was wondering um, uh, that uh, the first stage of chanting aparadha uh, we often talk about offensive chanting but could it also be seen kind of like as a beginner stage kind of chanting like we are trying but we are failing and uh, because many of us we start chanting even before we get office even uh, before we get official blessing from up from our teacher to it and uh, then kind of uh, with the power of that blessing we perhaps are able to move to the like practice practitioner stage so to say so um, so how would you comment on that yeah, yeah, I think it's absolutely true. Um, you like, my guru Marge says that, oh, I, I forget where I heard it, but basically the, the thing is that you can't go forward without chanting Nama Bharat. Like you have to start somewhere. So it, it, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think I was a little too uh, narrow in my explanation. And that's the problem with how sometimes Nama Bharat and Nama Bas, they get, kind of mixed up and so I definitely want to I think I'm, I'm going to do it in the next class to I'm going to even make a fancy uh, diagram and everything to really show what <laughs> what uh, how it's actually broken down because you're absolutely right like in in one place it said you know Namaparad is this completely offensive chanting but then in another place it's like you have to go through that stage. And I guess one way of looking at it is that we, like the material uh, conditioning is like an offensive state of being in itself from the point of view of like Shuddha Bhakti. But what can we do? Like, that's just a condition we're in. So it is offensive in a way because we actually have all these like selfish desires crowding our hearts and we, impose that on the chanting we, we our motivation to chant is not and you could say that's offensive in itself because it's like the highest thing and we want some completely like secondary measly you know outcome from it because we're attached to something so much lower than the pure name but I, at the same time like you could say that that namaparad is like ex extremely glorious because it's and the, the perfect connection with Krishna. So I think it probably okay, you can look at it both ways. But yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right that it's, it's totally necessary, like a totally necessary stage. But yeah, thank you for the question. That was a, that was a good question. Anything else? Okay, looks like that was it. Okay, well, we're just past an hour already, so let's stop here. Oh, actually, there was a comment. Let's see. 
Okay, Krishna Kumari wants to donate for the Ukrainian devotees. That's very nice. Excellent. Okay, well, thanks everybody so much for coming and let's keep this going. And Hari Priya is actually going to be giving a class on Monday around the same topic of chanting. So let's all meet up there again. Okay, go Brahmanande. Hari Haribo. Sri Lanka.